The following audio is from a sermon series called Recalibrate. In this sermon series, we take a look at the DNA of Sacred City Church, the identities and rhythms that are given to us in the gospel, and how we live together in community and on mission. For more information on Sacred City Church in Moline, Illinois, please visit scmoline.com. Hear the word of the Lord from Galatians 2, 11 through 21. <clears throat> but when Cephas came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face because he, because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. And the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along, uh, hypocritically along with him. So even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. But when I saw that their conduct was not in step with the truth of the gospel, I said to Cephas before them all, If you, though a Jew, live like a Gentile and not like a Jew, how can you force the Gentiles to live like Jews? We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we also have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law, because by works of the law, no one can be justified. But if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we were too were found to be sinners, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law, so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God, for if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. This is the word of the Lord. Well, one of the things that we do at Sacred City Church is we we typically preach exegetically, meaning we go verse by verse, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible. And over the last month or so, we've been taking a break from that, uh, working through a book of the Bible, and we've been in a series called Recalibrate, sort of refocusing, re-identifying what makes us a church, what the foundation of the church is, how we build upon that foundation, what that looks like. And in in a sense, it's been a lot like building a house. In fact, if you look at 1 Peter chapter 2, that is pretty much what we're told God is doing in his church. It says that, that you, the church, are being built up as a spiritual house. And so at the beginning of the series, we started by laying the foundation foundation for the church, and that is the only foundation, is the gospel, uh, that, that Jesus lived the life we couldn't live, he died the death that we deserve to do, and in that he has given us a new life. Now what this tells us in construction terms here, if we're building a house, is that God went dumpster diving for resources to put this house together. He went to the dumpster to find damaged goods, and he redeemed them. That sin had left us defective, dead in our sin. But because of the grace of God through Christ, we have been made alive and we've been repurposed for his purposes. Now on this foundation uh, for the spiritual home, we have framed up the walls that everything else is going to hang on. Uh, we, we've, been, we've been talking about our identity in Christ, meaning because of the gospel, because the gospel is true, what does it say about us? So we have seen so far that we are part of God's family now, that we went from being orphans of wrath to now children, beloved children of God, our Heavenly Father. That we have gone from having our own agenda, the way that we want to live, and now we live life on God's mission. He's the one who directs our paths. 
We've gone from, from trying to get ahead at, at any and all costs, trying to, to, to show ourselves as supreme and valuable, but now because of Christ and because we've been served so greatly by the gospel, we live as servants. We've seen that we once followed the prince of darkness, the pattern of the world, but now in our new gospel identity, we are disciples, we are followers of Jesus. We learn how all of life points back to Jesus. So in this sense, we've been, we've been digging into our gospel identity, who we are in Christ. And now we're at the phase of adding the decor. We're making this spiritual home homey, right? We want to, to present a, a certain feeling when people walk in the door, how, what it feels like. They want a, a, like a place where they want to be and belong. We're developing, we're talking about a gospel culture. That means we're making disciples who make disciples. Where people are accepted at their worst and by the grace of God and the love of Christ, they are loved to their best. We are talking about developing a gracious, loving, patient community that is radically committed to the truth of the gospel. Helping people become who they already are in Christ. Right? And last week we talked about that this is the work of the church. This is the work of the ministry. Helping people become who they already are in Christ. And just like building a house, and that whole process doesn't happen overnight. In fact, it's oftentimes a slow process. It takes a lot of time, months if, if not longer. And if that's how long it takes to build a home, right, a physical place where we would go to bed at night and have people over, just think of how much longer it takes for us to become more like Jesus. How much longer it takes for God to make us into this spiritual dwelling place. Because if you haven't realized, people are a lot more complicated than two by fours and screws, right? God is working in our hearts and in our lives to shape us more like Jesus. And this process that God has us in is called the process of sanctification. And we're going to come back to that and define that and work through that in a little bit. But to understand sanctification, we have to first understand what the gospel has accomplished in the past, the past tense work of the gospel, what the gospel is going to accomplish in the future tense, what we're waiting for, what we're working toward, or what God is working toward, rather. And so we have to see that it, in the past tense, the gospel work is that we as Christians, those who have believed upon Jesus, have been justified by faith. We've been made right with God through the work of the cross, that Jesus took our guilt and we have received, he's given us his righteousness, his innocence. And so in this sense, in being justified, we are freed from the penalty of sin because the just judge looks at us and he doesn't see our own doing, our own works. He looks at us and he sees Christ's work on our behalf that we are justified and declared not guilty. In fact, that's, I'm gonna jump around a little bit in our passage today, but that's what, what Paul lays out here in Galatians chapter 2, verse 15. He says, We ourselves are Jews by birth and not Gentile sinners, yet we know that a person is not justified by works or by what they do. They're not justified by works of the law, but through faith in Jesus Christ. So we have believed in Christ Jesus in order to be justified by faith in Christ and not by works of the law. Because by works of the law, no one will be justified. So we see that justification is exclusively based upon the work of Christ. 
Now, if it were up to us to be justified, we would mess it up, right? We would, we would not do it right, but thank God for the gospel that Christ is sufficient for us and he has measured up the God's standard on our behalf. So we are, the gospel first justifies us. Now God is working toward an end goal, right? The future tense of the gospel is that the gospel promises all Christians will be glorified one day. And what that means is that we will be completely freed from the presence of sin. This is where God establishes heaven on earth, that God's kingdom comes down here and meets us. He expels sin and death, no more sickness, sorrow, pain, no more suffering, no more death in us or in the world. This is where the kingdom of God is completed, consummated, fully established where Christ's glory and dominion is forever and ever, and there are no rivals to the throne. Satan is, is thrown away, that he's not trying to, to usurp the throne anymore. He's not trying to overthrow God's rule, that God has dealt with him. And in this world, in this new creation, is total perfection and the most pure delight. So that's the past, right? We've been justified. We see where God is taking us to be glorified with Christ. And that leaves this present tense work of the gospel, right? What God is doing right now, right? What's leading up to that day of glorification? And that is the work of sanctification. Now, I don't want you to get thrown off by all these big words, justification, glorification, sanctification. Sanctification, simply put, is the process of becoming more like Jesus. It's where the ugliness of sin is being ejected from our life and the beauty of righteousness is being embraced. Now this happens, right? Pushing sin out and bringing righteousness in, this only happens when we understand that in the gospel, the power of sin has been broken. Until the gospel came into our lives, we had been bound by sin. All we could do was sin. That's all we knew how to do. But because of the gospel, we have been freed from the power of sin, and we are no longer bound to sin. In fact, now, through the gospel, in Christ, we can live a Godward life. And that's essentially what what Paul talks about here in in verse 20 of chapter 2. He says, for I have been crucified with Christ. That's his justification. It's no longer I who live, but it's Christ who lives in me. I am becoming more Christ-like. It is Christ who lives in me and the life I now live in the flesh. I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. I do not nullify the grace of God. For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. See, verse 20, what, what, what this idea of sanctification is all about is now the love of Christ controls us. We took a look at that a couple weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 5. Now in understanding the love of God that is so strong that has freed us from the control of sin and now we live a Godward life. Because you have been justified, you are being sanctified. And this tells us that coming to faith in Jesus isn't just about punching your getting to heaven ticket. Right? Coming to faith in Jesus means that your life from that point on, from when you've come to faith, when you've realized you've been justified by the work of Christ until, until Jesus comes back, your life is devoted to being more like 
Jesus. Now I need to make a distinction here. Because when, when we look at justification and glorification, we've seen already in Galatians that justification is the work of God. We do not contribute anything to this work. And the same is true of glorification. That is ultimately God who is working toward this renewed heaven, renewed earth. That is all of his work, not ours. It's, it'd be like if God was dancing with a doll. Think of that. Like little kids who are playing toys, right? They've got a little doll and a little girl swinging the doll around, right? Think of God as the one who's, who's playing with the doll. Like we're the doll here, right? We're not holding on to God. God's holding on to us. We're not moving our limbs. God's the one who's leading us in the dance, right? That's what justification, that's what glorification, it is God who's doing all the work. Now, sanctification is a little bit different in the sense that this is work that God invites us into, that no longer are we like dolls, but we're like a, a real person now. We have a little bit of, of, of responsibility for how we move our body. Now, certainly God is the one who's leading, right? He's the one who's directing us on the dance floor, but now it's we get to partner with him in our sanctification. We get to be actively involved with the work of becoming more like Jesus. And so if this is the work that we find ourselves in right now, right, for the rest of our life, then we need to ask this question, what do I need to do to become more like Jesus? Right, what, what's my part here? What do I need to do to become more like Jesus? Now, people hear this question, and, and you know, I, maybe you're thinking right away, you know, it means i got to read my Bible more. I got maybe pray more. I need to get more involved with my missional community family. I need to tithe from a more generous heart. I need to be a, a better missionary. I need to be a better servant. Right? When we think of this question, typically our answers have to do with, with the external, external, measurable things that we do. But I want you to listen to this because our passage in Galatians is going to show us this. It is possible, it is possible to increase in all of these things, reading your Bible, praying more, uh, uh, doing more stuff for the church, with the church, MC family, all it's possible to do these things and not become any more like Jesus. Do you know that? It's possible to do all this stuff and, and completely miss the goal of becoming more like Jesus. See, this is what we see in our passage today with the people who are noted as the circumcision party. And I don't know why they're called that, because that does not sound like a party to me. <laughs> but these are people who have the, they have the external appeal of being devout Christians. They've got their act together. Right? They, they probably read their Bible a lot. They probably pray a lot. But the thing that these, the circumcision party is known for is being really good at keeping the Mosaic law. Right? They, they were really picky about the things that they could and couldn't eat. They, could, they had to stay away from, from uh, uh, pigs. They couldn't eat uh, birds, They're shellfish. There were things that they were prohibited from eating under Mosaic law. They, they were very serious about their festivals and ceremonies. Um, they were also, oh, well, obviously by their name, they were really... They thought that in order to, to be saved, you had to undergo circumcision. Right? This is why they earned that title. 
What these people did is that they put a lot of emphasis on the external factors, right? Because they had this mentality that it was faith plus their works, their doing, that equals justification to be made right with God. And what we've seen already, Paul, by jumping ahead, we've already seen that Paul blows that up, that it's not by works, it's not by keeping the law that we're justified, it's by exclusively faith in Christ. Now, when people live like this, when you have this mentality that it's, it's a little bit of faith plus a little bit of my works equals being made right with God, what happens is people become legalistic moralists, right? They tend to, to become judgmental and critical when other people aren't doing what they do, right? They have this sense of entitlement, of hypocrisy, of, of arrogance, that I've done this, that, that because I've, I've eaten this and not eaten that, that I have a better standing with God because of it. Now we must realize, and if we survey the scriptures, if we look through the New Testament, through the gospels, there is no one further from Jesus than hypocrites. Do you realize that? They're the people who tend to give off this aura of, yeah, they've got their stuff together, but, but externally, yeah, they got it together, but internally they're far from Christ. Just think of the story of the Pharisee and the tax collector from Luke 18. There are two men who enter the, the temple. One's a, a tax collector who just is aware of his brokenness. He comes to the temple and he's beating his chest. Father, forgive me for I am a sinner. I have done wrong. I have violated your, your laws. I've, I've not lived up to the, the standard of holiness. He's repentant. He's grieved over his sin. Yet across the room, there's this, this Pharisee who puffs up his chest and says, God, I'm thankful I'm not like that sinner over there. The arrogance, complete, uh, completely oblivious to his own sinfulness. And you know what, what scripture says? It was the tax collector who was beating his chest, repentant over his sin, who walked away justified. That means he walked away with Jesus. Or the Pharisee, he missed out. Now the scary part of this is that it's so easy for us to make this mistake. It's so easy for us to, to think in our minds that there's some sort of 50-50 equation or 70-30 equation where 50% of it is God's work, 50% of it is my work, and then together, 100% justified. And our passage today shows how easy it is because we have Peter Right, the, the man that Jesus said, Peter, you are the rock on which I am building my church. The man who the, the Catholic church looks to as the first pope. He's making this very mistake. He's veering away from the gospel. He's putting his hope in his own works. And here we see Paul, the apostle Paul, confronting Peter in his sin in verse 11 and 12. Take a look at that with me, would you? It says, but when Cephas, that's Peter, when Peter came to Antioch, this is Paul who says, I opposed him to his face because he stood condemned. For before certain men came from James, he was eating with the Gentiles. But when they came, he drew back and separated himself, fearing the circumcision party. 
Now, this is kind of a, a murky passage to really understand just by going, there has to be some sort of historical context to help us understand. So let me just unpack this for a, me- for a minute here. See, what's going on here is Peter has been, he's been discipling Gentile believers. That means non-Jewish people who have come to faith, who have put their trust in Jesus. He's been, been on mission to them. He's been discipling them. They're probably talking about Jesus uh, while they live life on life, life in community, life on mission. And most likely, the, the, the context which we find Peter and these other Gentile believers is they're probably at a party. Right, they're probably just at somebody's house. They're enjoying each other. Um, they're, they're probably eating these little smokies wrapped in bacon, got some good wine, a meat and cheese platter, enjoying some shellfish. They're, they're doing what they've been committed to do. Glorify God with all that they do, whether they eat or drink. They're not doing anything wrong. In fact, they're enjoying the Christian freedom that, that we have in the gospel, that we're no longer bound to the Mosaic law. In fact, God shows up in, 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 uh, to Peter in a dream in Acts 10, and, and he shows him that everything now is clean. There is nothing that is unclean any longer, and so they can eat, of, they can eat bacon. Right? They can enjoy shrimp. Right? They, they're not bound to that law anymore. But then all of a sudden, there's these certain men who are identified as the circumcision party. These guys show up, and and the room suddenly becomes a little more tense. Because these guys disapprove of the freedom that their Gentile brothers have in the gospel. They don't buy that, that Jesus has fulfilled the Mosaic law, so they don't have to keep it up anymore. And so they are still wrapped up in this Jewish hybrid of Christianity where they very much rely on the Jewish law, that it's their works plus faith in Jesus that equals justification. And so they live in a way where there's certain things that they don't eat. Now again, the Gentile Christians here that Peter was with, they're not doing anything wrong. But Peter finally feels this, he feels this tension in the room. He feels the, the condemnation of these, the circumcision party and how they're partaking of this food and enjoying their Christian freedom. And so Peter has to make a decision, right? Which side am I on? Am I gonna hang out with my Gentile believing friends or am I going to jump ship and join this circumcision party? So Peter does that, he sheepishly, I'm imagining this, is he sets down his plate of shellfish, kind of sneaks to the back of the room, wraps around, and finds himself in the midst of these Jewish believers, the circumcision party. And you can just hear in this group, I can't believe what those guys are eating. Can you believe that? And Peter joins in with the conversation, and what a hypocrite. He's got bacon stuck in his teeth, and he's condemning these Gentile believers. You can just see how Peter is two-faced here. It reeks of hypocrisy. And in this moment, maybe, maybe Peter's oblivious to this, but Peter is sending some mixed messages here about the gospel. He's saying to the Gentiles, in a sense, and in fact, this is what, what Paul addresses later on with his question at the end of verse 14. He's sending this message that in order for the Gentiles to be Christians... They have to culturally become Jews, right? In order to be Christians, you have to adopt these certain things that you do and don't do that are beyond the commands of gospel-centered scripture. It's like if we were to go to Kenya 
and say, hey, Kenya friends, in order for you to become Christian, you have to become like us Americans. Right? That's simply not true. That's unbiblical. It's terrible theology. So Peter, we see his, his conduct is off, but, and we can even trace that back to what he's believing wrongly about the gospel. But Peter is not just doing this himself. He's actually responsible for the falling out of others. He's misleading others to do this too. In verse 13, it goes on to say, and the, reg- the rest of the Jews acted hypocritically along with Peter so that even Barnabas was led astray by their hypocrisy. Right? There is a lot of confusion going on in this room right now. And Paul, the Apostle Paul, who's the one who's writing this passage, he happens to be there and he sees what's going on and he is not cool with it. So he opposes Peter to his face. That's what verse 11 says. Why does Paul oppose Peter to his face? Because 11 says, Peter stood condemned. And if you go on to verse 14, you see why Peter and company stands condemned. It's because they are out of step with the truth of the gospel. Now, when we think about this, it's not just a matter of like being, if, if you're thinking like you're marching in a parade, and you know, typically it's like right, left, right. It's not just simply being off on footsteps here. Peter's moving the opposite direction of the parade. He's out of step. He's out of of confirmation of with what gospel truth is. And so it's not just that he's out of step, but he's opposed to the gospel. Because the gospel is based on Christ's work, not ours. And by trying to fit in with the circumcision party, he's saying that it's my work plus the gospel or keeping the Mosaic law plus the gospel that makes us stand in right standing with God. And so Paul, out of love for the gospel, he steps into this confusion, into this mess, and he opposes and confronts Peter and when people read this, specific, especially guys, when people read this, we think that, that Paul has come to blast Peter with the truth. Right? We think that, that the confrontation is going to be done with the sledgehammer coming, wreaking havoc. Like Paul is saying, brace for impact because I'm going to hit you hard with this truth. However, if we give ourselves to reading the rest of of Paul's writing, we'll see that's just inconsistent with the way that Paul operates. Paul's not some bad boy, tough, truth slinger like that. Paul is is gentle, he's humble, he's compassionate. And so we can assume, if we remember what he said in Ephesians 4, to speak truth in love, that we can assume that Paul is doing that when he confronts Peter. Peter. Without using guilt or shame or holding wrongdoing over Peter's head, Paul steps in and says, hey, Peter, I think, I think you're not believing the gospel. He does this with humility and meekness. And here's why. It's because God's kindness leads us to repentance. Right? That is what motivates our repentance. When we, when we experience or see the gentleness and the humility and, and, and the kindness of God, that is when we have a desire to move toward God in repentance. Now, as Paul identifies what's going wrong with Peter here, 
It's really helpful because what he shows us is that sin, this, this conduct that, that Peter is taking part in, is preceded by unbelief. It's not just that Peter is doing something wrong. He's not believing something correctly. His conduct is misdirected because he's forgotten the truth of the gospel. And any time there is unbelief in our heart, sin will come out in our actions. Now, this doesn't mean that Peter has lost his faith. It doesn't mean that he's not a Christian at this moment. It just means that momentarily, Peter forgot the good news of the gospel in a way that he forgot he's not saved based upon his own works or what he does, but the blood of Christ. In a sense, Peter is functioning as an unbeliever. Now, at any point, at any given point, every Christian in this room and, and any Christian beyond this room and any, anybody who's not yet a Christian, we can always find at least one place where they're not believing the gospel. That we're functioning as unbelievers in various places in our heart. That is why we have no problem every Sunday coming in, confessing our sins together, right? Because Underneath our actions of sinful, the sinful actions is unbelief. In fact, one of the most prominent places where I experience this every week is when I sit down in my study to write my sermon. There's something in my mind saying, this is going to justify me. This is going to really solidify my identity in Christ if I can just preach a good sermon. So it's so crazy. Even as I'm writing a sermon... I'm functioning sometimes out of unbelief. Now, to become more like Jesus means we have to identify the root issue, not just the fruit issue. Now, the fruit is the visible sin that we see, right? It is, is the sex outside of marriage. It's the porn addiction. It's excessive drinking or eating. It's robbing God of his tithes. It's the rage and anger that stirs up. It's the gossip. It's these external factors that we can easily identify and say, yep, that's sin. In Peter's case, the fruit is separating himself from the Gentile brothers, right? That was the visual, visual uh, uh, issue. But if you go beneath the fruit, if you go down to the root, you'll find the underlying unbelief which compels you to sin in the first place. For Peter, it's laid out in scripture here that his unbelief is, has to do with the fear of man. We see this in verse 12, at the end of verse 12. Let me see if I can find it. He says, but when they came back, he separated himself. He's, so Peter separates himself. Here's why. Fearing the circumcision party. Peter cared more about the approval of man than he did about the approval that he received in the gospel. Right? In that moment, the approval of man was bigger than or greater than the approval that he received through Christ. Now, if underneath all of our sin is unbelief, that means, with the Holy Spirit's help, we need to think about why we do the things that we do. Right? Especially if we find ourselves in this cyclical pattern of sin, Right? If I'm always coming back to the same sin issues, we need to kind of go beyond the fruit and get to the root. And when you examine your sin, 
more than likely you'll find, not, not in every case, but, but often you'll find that at the root, you aren't believing one of the four big truths about God. And we, we call them the four G's here at Sacred City Church. We believe that God is good. We believe that God is so good that we don't have to look elsewhere for satisfaction. Right, we say that God is gracious so we don't have to constantly try to prove ourselves. We say that God is great so we don't have to be in control. We say that God is glorious so we don't have to fear others. That's what, that's what Peter's failing to believe right here. He's feeling, failing to believe that God is glorious and he can look to God for his approval and his right standing rather to his peers. Now, our unbelief can typically be traced back to one of those four things, right? If you're not believing that God is good, chances are you're probably partaking in in overeating or overdrinking, entertainment to an excess, right? That, That might be what the fruit looks like. If you're not believing that God is gracious, then you're trying to constantly prove yourself, to heap up your good works, to tilt the scales in your favor. If you don't believe that God is glorious, then you're trying to make other people think that, oh man, you're so great, right? Earn their acceptance, earn their approval. If you don't believe that God is great, then you're probably trying to control and you're getting stressed out, right? You're trying to control things in your life and you're just getting stressed out because you can't do it. See, the Holy Spirit is the one who exposes where we don't yet believe. He's the one who shines a light into the darkness of our heart and reveals these big truths about God that we're not really living into, we're not really believing. When unbelief is exposed in our heart, we do not need to cover it up. We don't need to pretend like it's not there. Because it is God graciously giving us an opportunity to move toward him in repentance. It's a beautiful thing. It's not something to shy away from. Repentance isn't this scary, nasty thing. This is a grace that God gives us. It's a life-giving thing. Because when we repent, after times of repentance comes times of refreshing But repentance isn't something that we just do one time at the beginning of our walk with Jesus. We don't just repent and believe the gospel once. We repent and believe the gospel moment by moment, day by day. In fact, Martin Luther, in his very first thesis, he says that when our Lord Jesus said repent, he intended that the entire life of Christians should be repentance. See, this is an opportunity for us to grow in our identity in the gospel. It's a gift that God gives us moment by moment, day by day, to put away the unbelief that is hampering the joy of living in our identity in Christ and binding us once again to sin. This is part of putting off the old self of unbelief and living as a new creation of faith. Now, wherever there is repentance, faith is there too. It's like two sides of the same coin. 
right? They're always together. We must have both. Repentance turns us away from sin and faith sets us toward God. Charles Spurgeon says here, he says, repentance must dig the foundations, but faith shall erect the structure and bring forth the top stone. Repentance is the clearing away of the rubbish of the past temple of sin. Faith builds up the new temple which the Lord our God shall inherit. Repentance and faith never can be separated. They go together. See, that's why scripture says after repentance comes times of, repent- uh, times of refreshing. We, we profess our faith today and say, repentance isn't a place that we just sit in, right? We just don't say, oh man, I'm such a sinner, right? Repentance is supposed to move us toward faith. It moves us deeper into our identity in Christ. Now as unbelief is exposed, God gives us the faith to believe what is t- true, He gives us the faith to really cling on to the the big truths about God in the four G's, right? That God is great, that God is in control. In the moment where God looked the most un-in-control, where Jesus was at the cross, where it looked like Satan was going to triumph, God shows how powerful and how in control he is in resurrecting his son. And because we see that moment where it looked like darkness was gonna set in, We can have the faith to believe that God is in control and we can trust him with our whole life, that I don't have to be controlled. God is great. means that we believe the truth that God is glorious. I don't have to fear others because in Christ, there is no more condemnation. In the eyes of our just judge, we are declared righteous. And if what God says of us is true, right? When God looks at us and he says, you are righteous, that means the opinions of others doesn't matter. That we can hold on to what God says is true of us in the gospel by faith. If we believe God is gracious, it means I don't have to prove myself. Now this is, this is a place where I constantly find myself just clinging to the gospel, that Jesus was sufficient for me. I don't have to live up to a standard. I don't have to be good enough. I don't have to prove myself because in the gospel, I am bestowed with the righteousness of Christ. We are, everybody. And the other big truth is that God is good. And because God is good, I don't have to look Elsewhere, in Christ, God has given us good gifts. He's given us new life, grace upon grace. And we can trust because God is good, he will provide everything that we need. He's provided for our biggest need in in dealing with sin and death. He's dealt with that in the gospel. And so we can trust that God is good. And because God is good, I can resist my tendencies of gluttony and self-indulgence. I don't need to be entertained by other things or use relationships to, to sort of supplement my longings. It's all right there in the gospel. Now the way that we become more like Jesus, the way that we grow in our gospel identity isn't by doing things. It's by first having the right belief. 
Right? It's repenting from our own unbelief and moving toward God in faith, toward what is true in the gospel. That's what Paul was getting at with Peter. He says, you're out of step with the truth of the gospel. That's what it looks like to be more like Jesus, becoming more in step with the truth of the gospel. And when we believe correctly, the overflow of our heart is to live righteously. As you believe the truth at the root of your heart, you'll see that the fruit of your life changes, that your virtues and disciplines will be shaped to be more like Jesus. You'll be more gracious and hospitable. You'll be more kind and patient, loving. Now, let me package this up here because this, this passage shows us something special where Paul is confronting Peter, but we don't really get to see Peter's process of repentance. We can assume that it happens because Peter goes on and he's going to write some more, uh, actually he's going to be responsible for writing some of our scripture here. And so Peter, we know, we can be sure that Peter does repent, that he does see his sin. He is grieved over. He repents and moves toward God in faith. But here's one thing that we can take comfort in, that if Peter, the rock on which God was building his church, needed to repent of his sin in his Christian walk, then we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be surprised when unbelief is revealed in our own hearts. Where repentance is necessary for us. We don't need to be caught off guard by it. We don't need to make excuses. We need to give ourselves to the dance. We step into repentance, step into faith and allow God's kindness in the gospel to lead us to repentance and cling to Jesus in faith. Now we've been talking about a gospel culture, right? How, how does this shape us as a church community? How does it sh shape the culture of our church? In a gospel community, repentance and faith is the emphasis. Right? If repentance and faith are happening, then the, the works are going to fall into place. Right? The right living is going to come along with it. In, in a gospel community, it's not about the numbers. It's not even necessarily about the conversions that are happening, that we pray to God that we would see conversions in our church. It's a question of seeing faith and repentance happening constantly in our midst. Right, that it's happening in our own lives. It's happening in our homes. That it's happening in our missional communities. And so we need to ask ourselves, if we're serious about the gospel, if we're serious about creating a gospel culture, are we taking personal responsibility for repentance and faith in our life? Right, are we aware of what the Spirit is trying to do in our hearts? Are we asking the Spirit to reveal the beauty of the gospel in a way that, that draws me toward that instead of the unbelief in my life? Are we giving other people in our faith community permission to help us identify the sin in our life? Because here's what I know. You don't know what you don't know. You, you just can't always know where you're not believing the gospel. And so we need other people to speak into that in our lives. Are you giving people permission? And when they do it, are you just letting it happen, right? You're not running from it. You're not trying to hide from it. You're receiving that as a gift of grace because it's gonna move you further into the gospel.
Sacred City, we're a gospel-centered missional church. That means we love the gospel. And if we love the gospel, we should want more of it. And repentance and faith is the motor in which we get more of it. That is the motor for which we change to become more like Jesus. If we love the gospel, rejoice. we rejoice in the justification by faith alone through Christ. And we long for the day of glory when Jesus will come and make all things right. But right now, right in this time, we partner with God in the work of our sanctification. We, we give ourselves to the dance. We, we invite the Spirit to work, leading us toward faith and repentance. And as we do this collectively, what happens is we establish a gospel culture where faith and repentance are valued. Where we see real, long-lasting heart change. Heart change that transforms the fruit of our lives. That's what God wants to do in us. That's what God is doing in us. Now today we're going to come to the Lord's table And the Lord's table is a reminder of the four G's. It's a reminder that God is good, he's gracious, he's great and glorious. That in this meal we we not only remember, but it is a means of grace which we, we by faith cling to the reality that Jesus was good enough for us so we don't have to live up to another standard. And it also means that as we come to the table, we need to repent, we need to check ourselves Identify the places of unbelief in our heart where we're not living into those truths and ask that God by his spirit would help us believe. Father, we thank you for Christ being everything we need. We thank you for the grace that he has bestowed upon us. We thank you for the gift of faith and repentance that we are invited into this dance with you to partner with you. And Father, our hope is to become more like Jesus from one degree of glory to the next. And that happens as we behold our Savior in faith. Would you change us? Would you create a culture of repentance and faith where we are serious about the truths of the gospel? Where we're not okay with half-truths and inconsistencies, but we desire to know the truth in full of your great love for us and have a transforming effect of that on our own hearts. Father God, would you change us by this meal as we take you in? Nourish our souls. Give us the faith to believe. I pray, Father, for those who have not yet taken Christ, that they would refrain from taking the the Lord's table and do so, that they would take Christ today. They would put their faith on Jesus, that he is sufficient for them. Because of Jesus, they have a right standing with God. They don't have to prove themselves. And to, to rest in the truth of the gospel. We thank you for all this in Jesus' name. Amen.